Hello, listeners. Before we start the show, I just wanted to let you know that starting Friday, February 3rd, and continuing for 10 weeks every Friday, over at soundcloud.com slash fusion patrol, we will be releasing a 10-part special series on Star Trek Strange New Worlds. It's the only place we're planning on releasing those episodes, so if you're interested, please feel free to check them out at soundcloud.com slash Fusion Patrol. And now, on with our regularly scheduled programming. You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series, movie, or audio and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we are looking at uh, yet another in the sort of animated recreation series of Doctor Who. We'll be looking at The Crusade. First Doctor adventure. A couple comments before we go on. The Crusade has not gotten its own standalone release. The Crusade has been bundled in with the Series 2 Blu-ray box set, which will ultimately be released in about six months to 12 years in the United States under the William Hartnell Series 2 box set. It is a telesnap recreation. Um, we'll talk about that. But uh, it's it's been released officially, and so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna cover it. Um, and I'll also add, before I go into my synopsis, uh, you'll often hear that uh, the world you create in your mind's eye when listening to uh, audio-only adventures is in every way superior to what can be created on TV and in the movies. I find that argument wanting, but that's it. Um, that's what we've mostly got here in two episodes, episodes two and four, which are missing from this four-part story. And... Um, they were recreated with telesnaps. After I watched them, I found out that they have recorded a separate narration track with William Russell, who plays Sir Ian, and he uh, fills in some of the details. Unfortunately, I'd already written the synopsis based on how I filled in the details, and so I'm sticking to it. Enjoy my mind's eye. Series synopsis. The TARDIS arrives near Jaffa in the 12th century. Nearby is King Richard the Lionheart and his party of men all named William. They all come under attack by the Saracens under the command of Emir el-Akir. Barbara is captured, and Sir William de Preux, which I'm going to pronounce in the way Americans pronounce French names, is captured, pretending to be the king as a diversion to allow the real king to escape. The doctor, Vicky, and Ian recover the wounded Sir William de Tombeau, giving him medical attention and eventually returning him and the king's belt, which was in Sir William's possession, back to the king in Jaffa. Before meeting the king, they must steal some clothes, which the doctor and Vicky accomplish. These clothes, however, are no doubt already stolen from the crusaders. Hopefully that won't cause any problems. In El-Akir's camp, Sir William meets Barbara. After proper introductions, Sir William maintains his ruse and adds cover for Barbara by claiming she is his sister, Joanna, and they claim the treatment to which they are entitled as royalty. El-Akir makes to take them to Ramla, where Saladin, the sultan, has his camp to gain his favor. 
Saladin isn't deceived and knows immediately this is not King Richard or Princess Joanna, and El Akir looks the fool. Sir William is sent back to El Akir's, but as a knight, he will be well treated in his captivity. Barbara will remain to entertain Saladin with tales of her travels. In King Richard's court, he is beholden to the doctor and fam, but not inclined to help Barbara. Sir William and the doctor make the king see the humor of Sir William's ruse. The doctor is a wily old bird and soon has the king thinking of a swap and perhaps something more. The king's sister, Joanna, meets the doctor, Vicky, and Ian, and she is suspicious of them, most especially of Vicky, who is pretending to be Victor, a boy. El Akir wants to do terrible things to Barbara, so he arranges for her to be kidnapped from Saladin's encampment and taken to his place in Lydda to suffer her fate. The king has decided to offer his sister in marriage to Saladin's brother, Safadin, to make a peace deal, and he sends Ian to convey the message. But first, he knights him, Sir Ian of Jaffa. The stolen clothes have come back to haunt the doctor as the Chamberlain recognizes them, but a 12th century human brain is no match for a Time Lord brain, and the doctor soon has this smoothed over to his satisfaction, if not everyone else's. Barbara arrives at Lydda, and then some noises happen, and there are pictures of guards apparently molesting a chicken, and Barbara wandering the streets, plus dramatic music, so I think she escaped. Sir Ian arrives at Saladin's camp and presents the king's proposal. They aren't going to let Sir William go, and he learns of Barbara's kidnapping, so Saladin allows him to go after her. Yes, yes, Barbara did escape, and as she is about to be recaptured, Harun Ed Din rescues her and gives her shelter in his home. Joanna discovers that Victor is a girl and, while first being upset, comes to accept that the doctor only perpetrated the deception for the girl's protection. She takes Vicky into her protection. In return, she suspects that her brother is up to something involving herself and asks the doctor to tell her if he learns anything. He agrees. Back in Lydda, Harun tells Barbara his tale. His eldest daughter was taken by El Akir for his harem, and he murdered his son and wife. For this, Harun lives only to kill El Akir. He has not told his other daughter, Sophia, about the fate of their family, and she believes they have gone missing. Harun goes out, but is captured, or maybe beaten, and left in the streets by the guards searching for Barbara. This ultimately leads them to search Harun's house, and Barbara surrendering to them to protect Sophia. Saladin has received Richard's peace offer and agrees to it, but still makes ready his armies, just in case it falls through or is a deception. Sir Ian, sleeping in the desert, has been taken prisoner by Ibrahim and his mostly missing brother. In court, the doctor is not making friends with the Earl of Leicester, who wants war, not peace. When asked directly by Joanna what the king has planned for her, the doctor demurs. So Lester tells her, and she is furious at both the doctor and the king, and she flatly refuses, citing that the Pope is ultimately in charge, not the king, and he wouldn't allow it. The king thinks the doctor spilled the beans to Joanna and kicks him out. Now trapped in El Akir's palace, Barbara is going to be treated very poorly indeed by El Akir, but she escapes again, this time into the palace. Sir Ian is tied up and staked to the ground. His captor, Abraham, wants him to hand over his money, but when Sir Ian refuses, he covers parts of him in honey and leads ants to him. Ibrahim can wait until Sir Ian tells him what he wants to know. Lester is questioning Vicky, and the doctor is less than complimentary to Lester and his desire to fight. The king overhears and puts an end to the questioning. He also tells the doctor that he knows he didn't betray his plan, but that it was expedient to pretend that he did. Lester is a good fighter, and he's going to need him. 
Having made an enemy of Lester, the king sends the doctor and Vicky to Acre. The doctor readily agrees, and they leave immediately, although he's actually planning to return to the TARDIS. Barbara has found sanctuary in El Hakir's Harim. She meets Harun's eldest daughter, who tells her that they all, apparently, hate El Akir and agree to hide her. All that is safe for one, who betrays Barbara for a ruby ring. In the desert, the ants, ever closer, Sir Ian cracks under pressure and agrees to turn over his gold. He convinces Ibrahim that it is in his boots, but when they are removed, Sir Ian's foot odor overpowers Ibrahim and rots the ropes binding Sir Ian's wrist. He subdues Ibrahim and forces him to take him to Lida. In Jaffa, Lester learns of the doctor's departure and sends his men to follow him. Unfortunately, the TARDIS lies in the direction of Saladin's camp, not in the direction of Acre. This gives Lester all the proof he needs that the doctor is a spy. El Akir finds Barbara, and this time he's really cross. But simultaneously, two things happen. Harun, who was just left in the streets, bursts in and, I don't know, probably kills El Akir. Then Sir Ian shows up to non-lethally thump a few heads. They are both safe and head back to the TARDIS. The Doctor and Vicky are aware that Lester's men are trying to entrap them, so the Doctor comes up with a picture-perfect plan for a telesnap reconstruction. They must make absolutely no sound whatsoever. This doesn't work, and the Doctor is captured and about to be killed when Sir Ian arrives and claims the right to kill the Doctor for himself. They get in the TARDIS and leave to the bewilderment of Lester and his men. The end. I'll just ignore the part from the Space Museum that follows there. <sighs> All right. Um, I think I pretty much had it spot on. I'm not 100% sure about the whole thing about Ian's foot odor, but it was really the only way I could figure out how removing his boots led to him escaping. But, um, uh, yeah. <clears throat> so, and I, and I didn't actually get a chance to listen to the audio uh, alternative version on that particular episode. So, uh, so... There's enough in the yeah. dialogue. Get that. <laughs> what dialogue? Uh, eh, uh. <laughs> well, I assume so. I mean, I had the narration on for that. But the fact that he cuts... Oh, no, that's what you don't see. Yeah, the, he cuts through the bonds tying his leg in order to take the Well, I figured he off. had to do that to take the boots off. So he has got two yeah. boots left, but his arms are tied to the ground. So how does he get his right, arms well, out of the ground? That He... He roll he rolls over back and pulls pulls his arms free because he's got leverage, I guess. Mm, I, I'd have okay. to go I'd have to go back and see if the <laughs> see if the audio narration explained it any more clearly, but it seemed to make sense to me at the time and I didn't realise that it was going to be the 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 <laughs> first aspects of the episode that we were going to start discussing. So I didn't memorize <laughs> it carefully enough. Well there's always the chicken molesting scene, but <laughs> With the guards but uh yeah uh, I, you know what what are your thoughts the ian's foot odor sorry sir ian's foot odor aside what uh well i don't know are we are, are we are we talking first about the because you've sort of alluded to it about the reconstruction itself or about the story that is reconstructed i, I guess we should well, talk about the story yeah. first that's what we usually do okay i mean my so my thoughts on the on the story and obviously two parts of it do exist in in uh, in full but uh, but actually there i have to explain i give a little bit of background in terms of doctor who and the crusaders which is that this is one of the first doctor who stories that i encountered i watched a little bit of doctor who when it was 
on TV and I was pretty young and Peter Davison was the doctor. And I can't quite pinpoint exactly which stories I saw, but I stopped watching it because it was too scary. And around about the early nineties, yeah, some... yeah. well, exactly. Around about the early nineties, there were some, there were some repeats and I saw those and either just before or just after I forget which I um, acquired some, or I, I was staying with a friend and they had novelizations of Doctor Who and that said so the old target novelizations and I read yeah. a whole bunch of those and Doctor Who and the Crusaders was one of those and kind of stuck in my memory particularly I thought it was a really good story but actually probably any of the those stories that I read the novelizations of would have w- would have made a mark on me just because you know it's the first ones you come across do so. So because of that, it being one of the early stories that I encountered and therefore perhaps made an, uh, an even more favourable impression because of that, I may be biased, but I love this story. I think it's, I mean, it. one of the things is, and I've also said this before, I just really like pure historicals in Doctor Who. And this is kind of, I mean, despite there being a number of elements within it that are, very much of its time, and I'm sure we'll come back to those, it very much kind of wholeheartedly throws itself into the the kind of historical narratives around the crusade and the, you know, R- Richard and jo- Joanna. And Where was Berengeria? It, Could they not afford Berengeria? She was there. She should have been there. I, I mean, I don't know. I have to, I have to say, I don't, I, it's not, kind of historical period i know a great deal about so there may be inaccuracies that don't bother me because i'm just <laughs> i'm just well, i'm just kind of going on i think what it's what it's kind of riffing on are, are, are these you know the kind of adventures that we see our characters getting up to like yin getting knighted or staked out in the desert and you know threatened with ants and it is very boy's own crusade <laughs> exactly exactly and again at the time i came across it it was perfect for that but it 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 is just a kind of very well structured story the characters are memorable the kind of escapades that they get up to have their own kind of drama and momentum and so even though the historical context that we get into it, it feels like you know, we've missed the beginning and we don't stick around for the end. It's yeah. enough that there are good characters there and that our characters themselves have have a story that does have a proper beginning, middle and end and is actually quite satisfying. Well, since since you gave your your backstory on coming to this, I will add that I certainly read The Crusaders in novel form back in the early 80s, long before I ever saw this. In fact, this is absolutely the first time I've ever seen any footage from this except maybe in a clip somewhere where they were talking about right. this episode um, with, you know, my family namesake, uh, Julian Glover there. <laughs> but I, I'm going to, I'm going to take a slightly different tense because I don't know, you know, the English uh, British United Kingdom education system is, is obviously very different and what they concentrate is very different. So I will say that in the, the either the late seventies or the early eighties, this is, this is going to take a long detour, but I'll make it as quick as possible. They started showing a show called Return of the Saint. Ian Ogilvy is Simon Templar. Um, 
which was a, a basically a remake of the 60s, The Saint with Roger Moore. I had never heard of this character before when I started watching those late nights in, like I say, it's probably the early 80s. But And I thought, oh, yeah, I quite like this. Then they started showing the Roger Moore ones. And I'm like, oh, cool, this is, this is like a longstanding thing. And then I finally figured out that this was actually based on a series of books. So I thought, well, I, I would like to read some of these books. And, and in fact, the Saint books are the very first time I think I ever really got truly invested in a series of books that wasn't, that was a, an actual series of books as opposed to a tie-in. So like when I was a kid, younger kid and then the Star mm-hmm. Trek books where they were novelizations, I, I had to have every one of them. But with the Saint books, I started reading them at the public library and then I started buying used copies at the bookstores. And then I, I have a nearly complete collection of them here on my shelves at this point. But the very first one I read was The Saint and the Templar Treasure, which I think, if my memory serves me correct, is either a 77 or 79 book. It was the most contemporary one they had in the library. It's listed as being by Leslie Charteris, who is the creator and predominant writer of The Saint. However, in subsequent years, I learned it was not written by Leslie Charters. It was ghostwritten, which is what he was doing in his in his dotage uh, just to keep the money coming in. And I really enjoyed the book. And the premise was that the saint went somewhere in France where they had a previous Templar fort. And there were some adventure hunters there who were treasure hunting for some of the treasure left behind by the Templars. Now, why I say this is because up until that point in my life, I had never heard of the Templars or the Hospitallers or any of that, because the Crusades is just something we don't do <laughs> over here. It's it's a non-thing. So I didn't know that. I, was like, I didn't know Templar was a thing. Then I started looking into that, and then I kind of got into the Crusades. And so I started reading history of the Crusades. I even have a couple books on historical books on the Crusades here in my books. I boned up on one of them last night after watching this, because I kept thinking, I'm having some trouble with parts of this, but okay. (laughs) And, you know, if nothing else, the Crusades does show us the innate destructive power of religion, Um, because that's all it is. (laughs) This is bloodshed for dumb reasons. So that is what I come to this from as a sort of not by any stretch of the imagination qualified historian on the Crusades, but I knew more about the real Crusades before I came into watching this episode, which I have always been looking forward to (laughs) because I've always thought, you know, this this is going to be a good one. I was not as impressed um, with this story. I thought it was disjointed. It it really feels like four separate. It's like, it's like a different cast of characters in every episode. And it's only four episodes long, you know, (laughs) it's like William today, gone tomorrow. You know, it's just they just kind of come and go and uh, the the merchant is in and gone and the other, I don't know, it just, it has a really oddly, uh, not even exactly episodic feel, but it's just, it's kind of a, it's kind of strange. Um, so I didn't enjoy it as much as I'd hoped. That's not to say I didn't enjoy it, but I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm a little disappointed because I really expected that this was going to be the pinnacle of the historicals to me, of the ones that I haven't seen and of the ones I've seen as well, I was hoping. <laughs> it was hard but, to say. Uh, it's the pinnacle of the ones you haven't seen. For obvious yeah, reasons. well, you know, working on the working on the assumption that when I finally get to see them in whatever form I get to see them, I'll go, yeah, it was definitely the Crusades. That's the one that sounds like it would interest me the most. That's the one that would 
you know, at every button. But it's kind of all right. It's okay. But it, like, I just felt like they could have done a lot better. And certainly, this one deserves six parts as opposed to the French Revolution, which was what, like, twelve parts or I don't know, twenty parts or. It's very long. Rain, the Rain, the Rain of, of Terror. Terror. I thought I thought the Rain of Terror was four parts as well. If I miss, is that only four parts? Holy cow! I, I wouldn't swear. I, mean, I know, to I know from my mind that it can't possibly be even seven parts, but it sure feels like it. It was so long and boring, and yeah. So this was not that. This was not that. Um, yeah, it moved along at a pretty good clip. It just, it really just felt like they were hitting the end of an episode and turning 90 degrees and going somewhere else maybe because they were trying to maybe because they were trying to fit in little historical anecdotes like for example uh william of um i'm gonna look down here because i can't pronounce it uh however it is pronounced also known as william of pratellus uh that's real um that that story or at least anecdotally real that he was with a hunting party with a king when they were out falconing and he was taken prisoner because they were pursuing him thinking he was the king. He, he decoyed them off that real, mm-hmm. real-ish, right? The, the story of trying to marry off Joanna to Safadin, uh, maybe real. It, it's certainly in many historical accounts. Um, and then it's certainly also apparently contested that there is no way that Richard could or would have tried that, but it's possible that Safadin tried it. But then on the other hand, you know, so is that one true? I don't know, but it's certainly believed to be true. So it's possible that they just kind of picked these spots and said, well, I want to do this and I want to do that little bit. And I want to do this, this other little bit. And I can't think of another little bit off the top of my head. Those are the two main ones, but uh, you know, and, and then they fleshed in a story around that. And said, well, we got to make, we got to make uh, Ivanhoe. Was it Ivan? No, no, no. Roger Moore was Ivanhoe. What was, what was William Russell? What was his show that he used to be the night in before Doctor Who? Do you remember? I had no idea. He, so he was already famous before he did Doctor Who. He definitely was a star of a show before Doctor Who. And he was a knight. And I can't remember if it was Ivanhoe or if it was... Anyway, I mean, obviously they had to knight him. I mean, it's just like that's just a it's just a given. They had to do that. Um, so, I mean, I could see that. I um, I think there's bound to be an element of truth in in what you say, but I actually think the structure of the story is probably more driven by wanting to present the different courts or the different um, sides of the story. So you. You know, you you sort of see the characters in the in the Lionheart's party, but you also see inside Safadin Saladin's palace and Elakir, and and you know a little bit of again, it's it's kind of very um, it's not it's not perhaps the way you would tell a story nowadays. But what they're doing, it I think, is mixing in characters who represent the different people affected by the war in various ways so the lionheart and his sister mm-hmm. saladin and his brother um the character whose name i have forgotten is it harun who harun uh, El, that's the father yeah, whose whose family is is uh, butchered by elakir elakir himself you know the the merchants the harim 
there's there's a lot of kind of I would say color if it weren't a black and white story, and I think <laughs> in some ways the action is designed to move us around those different settings and contexts in order for us to encounter those characters and experience those different aspects of it, and to some degree I think that curtails the ability to actually kind of give any of those characters a story of their own which is why I agree it feels a bit like you know they come in and they they drop out um, rather abruptly in some cases but I think the way that they manage that to kind of keep the momentum going and to make it feel satisfying is that we very much follow I guess probably primarily Ian and Barbara's story in this although the the doctor does play a fairly active role just not a very effective one mm-hmm. yeah yeah it, I don't know. it just it is it just has a it just doesn't gel it doesn't gel for me by the way sir lancelot the adventures of sir lancelot 1956 oh, okay. um and uh 20 or 30 episodes one season kind of show but yeah i mean yeah you had to had the night so i the other thing that i find interesting and i do not remember this about the crusaders the book so this is the crusade the book is actually doctor who and the crusaders in case you're looking for that target novelization i'm not selling you mine it's on my shelf somewhere but now a couple of things that i didn't think worked no they did they didn't feel right we're in the second season and if you'll recall going back to the earlier historical episodes at least some of them there is this element of barbara the historian filling in context for perhaps the other members of the crew like susan or or vicky there's very little of that here that if you don't know if it i i don't know what you would learn about the crusades if you were watching this episode it it, it's it seems like they've kind of abandoned that idea of actually teaching some yes barbara knows that king richard has red hair but that's about the only fact that we are at all given in the course of this episode to to i mean more power to vicky she seems just right on board here okay (laughs) but you think she wouldn't have a clue uh you know any more than i would no okay someone who with my educational background and not my weird simon templar fixation but uh, I also thought that was kind of like, and it, maybe that's why this is the beginning of the end on the historicals. You know, they're, they're just going to bounce them in. And I think in the Romans, there wasn't a whole lot of it because they weren't, apart from the fire, they weren't really trying to, they weren't really trying to do anything with historical events. They were just sort of the historical environment. Does that make sense? This one, obviously, this- they're trying to play up a couple of events that, may or may not have actually happened but but are believed to have happened. well i don't i don't know i think this probably is the historical this is the historical environment i think that is partly what is different about the historicals and maybe why it does make them more difficult to construct because you're not creating you know the kind of futuristic stories or extraterrestrial stories can they have the possibility to create an environment in which the story is told, which purely serves the narrative purpose of the story. Anything that's a historical is constrained by the fact that you can't 
really make all of it up, even if we've talked about the fact that bits of this may not be terribly accurate. So there has definitely been some making up going on. It's got to be within the parameters that allow the audience to recognise it as being the third crusade that they learnt about in school, if they learnt about it in school. Ah, um, you knew it's the third crusade. I did know it's no, the third crusade. There's no mention of that in this episode. And it's called The Crusade, as if there's only one. Is it not? Not The Crusades, it's The Crusade. I, I don't believe they have mentioned it was the third crusade. I hadn't picked that up. But yes, it is the third crusade. That's in my notes here. Started in 1190. So this episode, uh, and it was over by 1193. So best guess. Gosh, three minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was very quick. Uh, 85,000 men to the sword. And then there you go. Now, um, it, <laughs> this would have taken place in 1192 by all. Ball put where, when he was at Jaffa. And, and, and that's all right. You know, that, that's is exactly what happened. He did come to Jaffa. Jaffa is where that was kind of their last real success story was before they failed to reach Jerusalem. So, but yeah, no, didn't get that either. Did, did, didn't even get Barbara getting a line. Says, you know, there were eight crusades. This ran from Laurentine 63 to Florentine 63. This one must be about mm, the third crusade during the time of King Richard or, you know, anything, but nothing. <laughs> like they just, well, like, which I assume maybe every school child in Britain knew that, you know, maybe. Well, I mean, you've certainly, you've certainly provided me with a bunch of facts that I wasn't necessarily familiar with. But on the other hand, I are younger than the people in this, I, though. I don't care. It's like, I don't, I don't particularly want this serial to lecture at me. And these are not facts that I'm going to retain or go and tell my friends about. But that was the point of the show, was it not, originally? What to, I mean, kind the of historical were to, well, to convey some facts and provide some context. Yeah. Well, it's the context, it, it's, though, isn't it? It's the empathy, and I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. To 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 me, it does. It does. It kind of gives you the interesting things, things you were talking about, the conflict of the the religion, and actually, there are kind of there are interesting moral dimensions. Again, I kind of question whether a story like this would be handled in this way but nevertheless there they are addressed the things like joanna's role or joanna's duty in this mm-hmm. the you know avoiding bloodshed by essentially giving her to to uh Safadin. Mm-hmm. and there, there's i mean I, I i think i had this in my mind before i saw the the comment that um dennis spooner had admired the Shakespearean nature of Whitaker's writing. But there is actually a a kind of sense of this being a bit like a Shakespearean history. That the that Shakespeare was a lot of the time not writing well, a lot of the time, probably all of the time, not writing for historical accuracy himself. He was writing partly for drama, partly to make political points that were contemporary and would please his patrons by being selective about the histories that he tells. And he would pick he would pick out in the way that I think we get here some of the kind of interesting, as we say, the the, the dramatic conflicts and power plays going on between our lead characters and also a kind of range of characters like you've got here between the kind of the nobles and the, you know, the kind of servants and thieves and beggars. So 
there is something incredibly rich about that in this for, for at least for me i don't think that's don't think that's there in say the romans this is one of my favorite historical no the romans is a bit of a is a bit of a farce I, i'm gonna have to say though that you know looking whereas i said that i was expecting the crusades the crusade to be at the pinnacle of the historicals i do have to look at them and go i can't think of one that i liked better yes <laughs> uh i you know actually i do quite like the romans but it's pretty much a comedy hmm. too but I, i'd have to go back and rewatch that one i wouldn't i wouldn't show the romans to anyone who I was trying to convert to my own crusade for returning his pure historicals to the current Doctor Who on TV. I don't think I found one yet to, to show people to say, this is why we need historicals back, but uh, okay. Well, I would um, happily show people the Aztecs and I would show people this if Aztecs, right, I yeah. was convinced uh, they would yeah. be able to get past the reconstruction. Yeah, the Aztecs might, it might be better. Yeah, that's actually actually you know what the one that stands out in my mind as being the best one of the bunch, and we've talked about it on the podcast, which is telling you something right about it now. Marco, Marco Polo. Polo. Yeah. Because by the time they condensed it down to seven and a half minutes or whatever their reconstruction was, it's like <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> I forgot how short it was, but it's yeah. it's pretty darn short compared. It was to- about half an hour, I think. <laughs> So down down that from was actually seven like, seven twenty five minute episodes, so yeah, yeah, so i do, I do kind of go, I don't know how that one would stand up in full in, in full reconstruction when they get to that, we'll find out, but uh yeah, no well again i i haven't I haven't tried to listen to Marco Polo because I'm hoping that we will get some well, I'm sure we will get some version of it, although chances are it's going to be another telesnap reconstruction yeah. like that but they're going to release it when they get around to the series one blu-ray box set yeah yeah i assume that that's they're gonna to have to keep doing that um uh, I, I'll, I'll throw out a couple things just from the from the historical standpoint just in case anybody is remotely uh remotely uh interested in case you didn't know of course all the names have changed and all of them but most of the names have changed jaffa is tel aviv is modern day Tel Aviv. Uh, Ramla, Lida, uh, they're all right in that area. Jerusalem is inland. Those are all coastal. And that's basically what the Third Crusade did. They came down the coast. Uh, at, at, at this point in history, after the Second Crusade, there had been a kingdom of Jerusalem established, which then collapsed, and a king of Jerusalem and whatnot, and it collapsed and had fallen back to several coastal provinces because i believe it was saladin at that time took back jerusalem and and drove them to the coast but didn't didn't drive them out so the third crusade was to come down reinforce those uh coastal kingdoms and then take jerusalem back which they never did they they failed the doctor's comment about him coming within sight of it that is part of the lore that that richard saw jerusalem on a uh an excursion saw that it was fortified in such a way that there was no way he was going to take it and apocryphically said, you know, I'm not going to look on this again until I take Jerusalem. And he never looked on it again. And ultimately he managed to cut a deal with Saladin for peace that allowed them to keep their lands and allowed pilgrims to go to Jerusalem, uh, which was ultimately the deal that they, that they sealed. 
but she kept the peace for, I don't know, three years or something. <laughs> so, but, um, so yeah, so you're picturing in that area, which I, I think you know by the names that I've just mentioned there, that's this, that territory has been stable and without conflict since these, since these times. I mean, it's, it's all been, uh, it's all been wonderfully peaceful over there in the, in the Middle East. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. I, I think I already mentioned he was, it started in 1190. He had an army of 85,000 men. They were particularly brutal. Um, Richard himself was quite the fighter and was always at the front. The stories that we're told that he recounts of Saladin sending him ice and fruits when he was ill or snow and fruits is true. Apparently true, or at least apocryphally true from the writings of the time. That was, that was the way they treated kings. They were royalty. They, they actually had this sort of respecty thing going between them and the knights. So when the, the, the whole thing about Sir William being taken and treated well, exactly right. If you'd been lower than that, you'd have probably been killed because that's anybody below that wasn't worth it. And they, they would butcher them both sides. Richard had just uh, recently after he'd taken acre, he tried to cut a deal with Saladin for an exchange of prisoners, not context here, but if, if this had been mentioned in this episode, you might, you might wonder why Saladin was kind of, I don't know about this peace deal thing. Uh, Richard had gone to them and said, look, uh, we've got 3000 captured men, women, and soldiers here. And we'd like to trade them for a bunch of money or whatever. Saladin kind of goes, yeah, okay, I think we can do that. And then he, he delayed, basically, hoping to get more troops coming in. And eventually Richard just got really angry one day, and he hauled all 3,000 people out to within sight of the Saracen camp and slaughtered them in front of them. So they, they, have, they had their differences of opinion. In another instance that they put out somewhere, uh, Richard was apparently fighting, and his horse had been hacked pretty good, so he was on a... And Safadin apparently saw that, didn't think it was appropriate for a king to be fighting on a horse that was really badly damaged, and sent him sent him horses, because a king should have... king should be fighting proper. It's, it's just a weird... It's a weird code of conduct that they... And I, I felt like they were trying to convey that in this episode. I don't know if it was as successful, but it, it, you know, it did. And although we only saw the four of them and, and some, most of them were named William, um, he had an army of 85,000 uh, and something like 200, 250 ships that had set sail uh, as, part of, as part of his fleet. His sister, Joanna, was the Dowager Queen of Sicily. She was 25 years old. This, this did, again, apparently there was some brokerage of trying to get her to marry Safadin. And then they would cede all the lands that they had won, all the coastal kingdoms, they would cede as part of her dowry so that she would become the queen of basically Jerusalem uh, and, and Safadin would be the, the emir, not Saladin. And uh, that was uh, that was put forth by somebody. Some historians say it was put forth by one side. Some historians say it was put forth by the other side. Others still say it's ridiculous and idiotic that they would ever even consider that because there were a variety of things working against it. For example, she was a widow and a widow can't be forced into a marriage, apparently. Um, that, that's a thing <laughs> without her consent. And uh, also the, 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 the Muslims can divorce with no consequences for the 
husband and he gets everything. So he could have just married her and then divorced her and she'd have been out and dead and gone. So it, it, it never came to anything because she just steadfastly refused. So, and let's see, I don't know. I think that's it I have on the historical stuff, but uh, it, it was, it, it just felt a little bit like a, a miss because it is sort of a rich tapestry and yet it, it is kind of treated like a 1950s Ivanhoe, so Lancelot kind of running in the forest and daring do show. Although not as much daring do or running in the forests. But do you have anything else on the story? I'm interested in the the kind of lead, our regular characters, because I think in some ways it's quite interesting how they're handled in this. Certainly the the doctors, the doctors playing quite sort of high status character he pulls off his kind of hartnell imperiousness to mm. good effect a number of times in this and i think it's probably one of my favorite of hartnell's performances but it's interesting in some ways that it's slightly atypical of the doctor i guess i mean like he he's quite violent in the fight at the opening he bashes one of the saracens and then he grabs a sword and waves it around and yep. i mean i i suppose we do see in is it in an, an unearthly child or is it no it's it's the second episode the ten thousand tribe of gum or whatever, BC, yeah. or whatever where where he tries to bash the head in of a um cave dwelling early human but by this point it i guess it it doesn't it doesn't feel entirely typical and actually in some ways ian is even more you i mean you you picked up on that kind of backflip he does when he pulls his hands free from the stakes in the desert after his boots have been cut off but that's not all he does he has quite a lengthy sword fight himself at the beginning he has a number of action scenes where you kind of think hmm this is more you say he was Sir Lancelot. that sounds more yeah. like the Sir Lancelot kind of thing than the Ian Chesterton school teacher kind of thing. I mean, this is Although he, this is an he interesting is there for the fighting for a science teacher to have. He, he's always that. I mean, he's that in the Aztecs. He's, I mean, that is the role he ultimately comes out to fulfill, though. I think it, he may have is. been the science teacher and also the PE teacher at the school. Or well, maybe it's it's de- it's it, it's definitely they're writing for. William Russell more than they're writing the character of this the school science teacher who has wandered into the TARDIS because he was curious about one of his pupils. Mm-hmm. Oh, the other thing about the Doctor was that he I, I, he he decides he's going to steal some clothes. I don't know mm-hmm. whether that counts as you know. In addition to violence, he's committing theft, but he justifies it on the basis that they're already stolen, which is kind of true on the one hand but doesn't really mean that he's not enriching himself as it were so well i mean the the first doctor was uh a little bit more of a devious character i mean i I think in some ways they did paint him as a bit the anti-hero this is the man that sabotaged his own ship because he wanted to go see the dalek city yeah mischievous as you say it's a guy who was willing to bash the head of a caveman in to serve his own ends. And admittedly, yeah. they toned that down. And I have no problem with him grabbing a sword to fight when he's been attacked by somebody with a sword who's trying to kill him. I think no, it would have been were... a little believable if he failed at that utterly. 
but uh, well, yes, <laughs> that would yes, that would have been that would have been my point. I I don't I don't disagree with any of that. It's I guess it's just interesting that we're into the second half of um, season two, and I yeah I, I don't I don't know. I mean, none none of this in any way detracted from my enjoyment of the episode. I think possibly the the handling of Barbara what it that she's mostly the kind of damsel in distress Mm -hmm. in this she isn't never uses her knowledge of history to save the day she doesn't use her knowledge of history to save the day but she's she also makes moves that you kind of think are not necessarily too smart in every case so it's perhaps not barbara's finest episode (laughs) no vicky I just got confused by. I mean, I didn't really understand why she was being dressed up as a boy in the first place. Because what was the point? It's not like they were hiding that Barbara's a woman. So and they certainly what? weren't doing a, a good job of hiding that Vicky was a woman either. Um, no, it certainly <laughs> seemed a bit odd that these people go, "What do you mean she's a girl?" And well, yeah. you know, the clothes maketh the man. And those are the clothes they were able to steal. I don't know. I guess it could have um, been that. I mean, again, I suppose it comes back to the Shakespearean thing of you can't get much more Shakespearean than a bit of cross-dressing. But Vicky was confused about why she had to dress as a boy, I think, and then so was I confused about it. But then also I was confused about why suddenly they had the scene where there's a reveal and she doesn't have to dress as a boy anymore because it didn't seem to serve any purpose in the... Nope. greater story it just seemed to be a way of you know filling time yes and it's it's another one of those 90 degree turns that just mm-hmm. felt like okay well we went there and nothing came of it you know it's like sir william disappeared after a certain point after the last time he sees ian and says, right, you know good luck and okay sir william's fate is sealed he's going to be in ella Keir's, uh prisons forever i guess and he, you know, he could have turned up again at the end, but obviously they don't want to pay the actor um, to be in for a part. It's like, no, and it's then sort of this presumably when they've got and another, went. and they've got yeah. another eighty-four thousand nine hundred ninety-nine Sir Williams. So exactly, he exactly. Afford to lose one. <laughs> I, you know, the, okay. I will point. I will point this one out. So Sir William de de Pre, de Pre, de, de, however they pronounced it, real. The other Sir William. Uh, or whatever it was, um, not real. So they created a scene where the king was out with two people, one historical and one not, and they couldn't of thinking of going. Well, maybe we could call the other one Sir James. Sir Bernard. <laughs> yeah, anything. But for whatever reason, they chose to name them both William. That's just an odd writing choice, unless you're going to make a joke of it, which they didn't. So, you know, no, although, I, mean, I mean, it happens in real life. Sure. It I'm does. sure that in your life you've met other Simons. Um, I met a Eugene once, twice, two, two of them. It, I mean, it's it's interesting that uh, um, you're having difficulty pronouncing Depreux, but and also difficulty with having two Williams on, on the screen. But Julian Glover deals with this by calling him Richard Depreux at some point, which both gets his name wrong, but still has the problem that there are two characters with the same name because he's supposed to be Richard as well. <laughs> was the actor's name Richard by any chance? Uh, no, I believe it was John. 
Okay. It's just, you know, I, it's like, it's like that's beardy guy and that's captured guy. It's not a problem. It's just it, when you're, and it's like, well, what are we going to do about Sir William? What are you going to do about Sir William? He's right there in the room with you. What? <laughs> it's like he's injured. He's got the William the beardy. Oh, William the beardy. <laughs> got it. it. It's just, it's not that it didn't happen in the real world and not that I couldn't keep track of it. It's just, well, yeah, no, in a way I couldn't keep track of it because when I'm writing notes down and then this suddenly like, wait, I thought the other guy was Sir William. Oh, no, I'm confused. Wait, wait. No, there's two Sir Williams. Okay. Well, I guess they're both real historical figures, and therefore that is why you would do that. But no, they are not. So why would you do that? Oh. <laughs> and and <clears throat> odd, but okay, there you go. The other thing about the doctor's the doctor's um behavior in this is again, I think it's coming back to the, the product of the time and you know, file under actors blacking up and all the other things that go on. But it's the way that he treats Richard's plan to marry Joanna off without her consent because he doesn't give away the king's plan to her, although he's accused of it. Yeah. And it's almost presented as if he's done the right thing there he's being unfairly accused of doing something that undermines the king but actually i definitely felt that he should have tipped her off as to to what was going on i kind of that whole thing is a little odd because he does say a couple of times to richard before the idea is broached that he should ask her Right. He he does. Mm -hmm. He does put that case that it's a great idea if she agrees. Yeah. If she yeah. agrees. And... Now, is that because he knows she won't agree because he knows his history? Or is is that just because, you know, he's he's taking the position of of let's go with consent. And but then he did promise her he would keep her informed of his plans. And he absolutely breaks that. He, he, I he think absolutely I, breaks that. I, and he doesn't tell her. Yeah, it's, it's weird. No, he, he, he he does absolutely break that. I think I think the point about trying to get Richard to tell her is that he's trying to do that so to keep to to make sure that she gets kept informed, but without having to, as it were, go against the king's wishes because he's obviously at that point not wishing to. Well, at any point, not wishing to tell her, and so if he were to go ahead and share that confidence with Joanna herself. It would be going against the king. So he there's a there's an element of scheming with it going on there, but he doesn't get away with it. And mm -hmm. when the chips are down, he decides to side with the king in effect rather than with Joanna and to keep his word to her. Yeah. It's an odd it's an odd thing. The other the other part with the doctor and I mean I watched it I watched it twice just to that's that whole bit when the Chamberlain comes to him and accuses him of stealing the clothes. And he he circular logics his way out of that. But as far as I can tell, he did not. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you people are... It's like that Abbott and Costello routine where they, they say, I can't even do it. It's so... It, it mind bends me. They're like, give me $5 uh, or I need... Loan me... Loan me ten dollars. Here's five dollars. I paid you back. Now you owe me five dollars. And da, 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 what? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, somehow, it felt like that. And uh, 
I mean, sure, it's supposed to be funny and, and it kind of is. And but at the same time, it's like, yeah, I guess you just can't outsmart a time lord. That's all. <clears throat> That's all. I mean, the so performances of the regulars aside, I would say the acting in this is distinctly mixed. I mm. I really liked obviously you've got Gillian Glover and Jean Marsh and we know they're great and they are great in this. Former Mrs. Um, John Pertwee. Indeed. Bernard Kay as well. But there are there are a lot of there are a lot of other performances in this that are pretty weak. I think not major characters, but scenes between guards or soldiers or whatever where you think you've just hauled these guys in off the street. <laughs> well, they they did haul some people in who were not as commonly looking of English people. Some of them are obviously in blackface and some of them are not. So it's possible that they pickings were less in the, uh, the actors guild back then uh, for some of those roles. But um, yeah. Yeah. Some of them. Well, no, bad. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, I don't, I don't think the bad performances were just the people. Oh no, who, no, 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 no. I mean, it was, it, no, it was kind of a, a, across the board. It wasn't, wasn't all terrible, but yeah, there were definitely, de- I was definitely thinking, you know, this is a great script and generally well realized. Some, some people were making the most of it, but there were definitely scenes where it felt like you were watching a school play. <laughs> I definitely did feel that it was, it was just Richard and his, you know, five compatriots there uh, the, <laughs> that were there to take, uh, take back the, the Holy Land. Uh, there was something to that. Um, and and maybe that contributes to the small scale feel, the play feel of it. But yes, but when the when the Holy Land is as small as small when the Holy Land is small enough to fit in a television studio, you probably only need five people to take it. That's true. That's true. And he still failed. He still failed. Indeed. Although I mean, I did say so t- talking talking about the fact that we kind of leave before the the, the kind of what is going to happen is explained in dialogue, but we do get quite a kind of satisfying ending where Lester tries to, uh, or it, it intercepts the doctor and is about to do away with him, Killing. you know? Yeah. And, and so that, that kind of moment where Ian kind of pulls, pulls that trick is, uh, it's, it's, it feels like the story is winding down and then it's got one more thing up its sleeve. It's pretty satisfying ending. I thought, I will. I will go so far as to say this: I was slightly, I was slightly confused in that moment, and then my brain put the pieces together. It's like, oh yeah, here's another character that did not show up until after Ian left. Lester was not in mm-hmm. any of the mm-hmm. earlier episodes until after Ian was sent, and then Lester shows up. It's it's yes. again, it's that sort of rotating cast. Just they come in and they're gone. It's the only way it works. Obviously, he he can't have known that. Ian was part of Sir Ian was part of the uh, of of the group, but uh... and, and we've kind of talked about how the, this story is probably better for not being an out and out comedy in the way that the Romans was. But if there was one thing that made me laugh in this, it was Lester saying, "We will not speak of this, or we will look like fools." I thought that was very good. You'd think they would just be all on the witchcraft thing, but yeah, all right, no, it's a good good call on his part. I agree. So. Unless you have no. anything else on the story, no, let's, let's, let's do recall. Turn our attention to to the travesty that is Telesnap reconstructions. Okay, go. go. <laughs> well, 
I'll, I'll, I'll let you go first. I've seen better and I've seen worse. I think obviously a lot. I've paid for worse. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. I, I mean, the underwater menace is, is odd. <laughs> it's the pinnacle I, of bad. Yes. Well, one of the things is that you can only use the material that you have available. And some stories have lots of telesnaps and some stories have fewer. And, you know, being able to, because they weren't intended to be placed in a sequence that would accompany the soundtrack in order to actually convey the narrative that is now missing. You can't necessarily expect it to work perfectly in that respect. And so some of the things in this that, or put it the other way around, the things in The Underwater Menace that were just inexplicable, they don't do in this. So mm-hmm. they tend to put up a telesnap of the person who is speaking. I know that sounds fairly basic, but that was, that was really odd in The Underwater Menace. The other the other factor in terms of having to basically depend on your source material is the soundtracks weren't designed to be heard without seeing the video. So I think that's very different. And I, I kind of felt motivated to leap to the defense of audio drama because I do think that when it's done well, one of the kind of things that's great about it is it is that you can build these pictures in your mind that really kind of transcend the limitations of what could be realized on screen. And this wasn't designed like that. Some of the information that is being conveyed by the sto- by the by the production is being conveyed visually, and that's not always the case. You know, some of the missing missing episodes are kind of wordy enough or whatever that you can pretty much get everything that's going on just by listening to all of the dialogue and a few of the sound effects. But as <laughs> you kind of very well illustrated in your synopsis here there are sequences where the soundtrack simply doesn't convey what the hell is going on at all and there just isn't enough visual material to piece together something that that conveys that so in a way i mean i understand i think why they did it but in a way it seems to me an odd decision that on the blu-ray the default soundtrack doesn't have the linking narration that I think is just they've included it almost as an extra because I think it was recorded for the CD release about 15 years ago. Ah, but it is more or less essential to understanding this story. It is. It's quite. It's quite. Uh, it has quite a flourish to it. To Barbara winding down the dark streets, the shadows winding around her. Everywhere she turns, this it is a city in fear of Elakir, and it's like, wow, okay. <laughs> Well, I think I think that's maybe why it's not included as the default because there's an element of editorializing. It's it's there's new writing going on there. There's there's laying over what was in the original script and interpretation that potentially goes above and beyond that. But I think you have to do that with the missing episodes. The choices that you make about the telesnaps that you're going to present on screen are themselves editorial decisions. Certainly, and we've discussed this before, when you do the animations, you're creating something that is essentially a new production, albeit partly new production married with partly old production. But that's just the reality of it. I would love it if the original Crusades episodes were rediscovered and we could see what was intended to be on screen. But if we can't, what I would like is to enjoy as much of those original performances as is possible 
with the story still making some kind of sense. And obviously the ideal for that is, could we please have an animation for it? Mm-hmm. But if we're going to have something that is has has kind of gaps in in what is visually conveyed then we yeah we do kind of need need the audio or something to fill in those gaps for us so it i mean it's great that that audio soundtrack is included on the discs but i i think maybe i mean the the animations where they're included are the default the recons because they've included the recons on the animation releases are an extra and I feel like probably it would have made sense to make the narrations the default on this and the I agree unaugmented audio an extra. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree that it <clears throat> that should have been the default position. I mean, I would go so far as to say is they should have just knuckled under and done an animation, but okay. They didn't. It's <clears throat> like just, just bite the bullet, get the job done so that you don't have to buy this again in five years when they decide to try again. It is, as reconstructions go, I would put it more or less on par with the Web Planet missing episode, the the Telesnap version, which I thought was pretty good, given what they had available. The Web Planet's um, not missing, is it? Sorry, not the Web Planet, the Web of Fear. Web of Fear. Ah, right. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. The, the, first, the first reconstruction before they did the animation. Yeah, before they animated it. Yeah, that was a, that was, you know, that was a, as telesteps go up to that point, I would say that was the best one I'd ever seen. And come to think of it, that's the last one I've seen since this one. So, um, <clears throat> except for the underwater menace, which is an absolute travesty uh, for a variety of reasons. And that's not that's not me bagging on the underwater menace. The story, that's a whole different thing. It's just it's a terrible telesnap reconstruction. <laughs> and they had the audacity to sell it to me. I paid for, and I still had, think they, I still think they had the audacity to offer to sell it to you. Yes, I still think that they should come here, get down on their freaking hands and knees, beg my forgiveness with my money in my hand to give it back to me after after purchasing that because it's so bad that it is an embarrassment. How dare they force you to buy it? No, I buy it thinking it's going to be not shit. Is my thought, <laughs> and then then it wasn't. Pardon my French, but I think we can get by one in 10, 11 years. But it's just like, wow, yeah. you thought you Apple, could Apple sell, are putting you, a warning on the saw, podcast now. How could I have, you know, how could you sell that in good faith to people? That's what it crossed my mind. It's like, and, and we know, just to go back to that, that the team that put it together were given very strict instructions by the, the BBC arm that was doing this, that they weren't allowed to do anything with that telesnaps. They were allowed to only use telesnaps that they had. They were only allowed to use still telesnaps. They were only allowed to use them in the order that they appeared at the place where they appeared. And they could not like, oh, here's a shot of the doctor talking with an indiscriminate background. So let's put this in there while he's talking because it's from somewhere else. They weren't allowed to do any of that. They they were under strict, make this as awful as you possibly can orders. And they did, they succeeded. But then somebody sold it to me. And that is the part where, like that's an editorial decision that they should still be paying for. This was better than that. But as you say, there, there are some sequences in this that just cannot function without the visuals as, as they exist. They just like the, the bit where Barbara's running up and down the streets. I I really did. When they go, bring the woman into the palace and then, ah, and then I'm like, what something 
huh? Did somebody just rescue her? Was it Ian? Did Ian make it in time? No. Uh, now she's, is she in the palace? Is that indoors? Is that outdoors? I don't know what's going on here. Oh, he, the guard, he's molesting some chickens. Uh, okay. I think she must have escaped. It, it took a couple of frames to go. I think they're chasing her through the, the thing. Sure. <laughs> she should have, you know, stomped on their foot and said, I'm getting away from you. <laughs> or run or something. But she didn't. So she was not obviously planning for the future when the episode would be lost. <laughs> um, <laughs> there is one thing I will say for this reconstruction that I, I have to point out. There's the scene where Barbara is in the harem and the eldest daughter of uh, Arun says, uh, we will, we will hide you here. We all hate him. And they cut that picture to that one oh, woman. And you're going like, oh yeah, that woman. And that was my notes at that point were that woman. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I thought that, look. I thought that was well done. I mean, it was bashing you over the head. Because every time they mentioned um, Elakir or the reward or anything like that, they cut to that one telestat they had of Fatima in the harem. <laughs> and, With that look on her face, yeah. Well, I'm not even sure if it was that look, but but it but it was it was kind of you. The pro, the point is, you don't have her expressions sort of say, "I'm pretending to." I'm pretending to be mm-hmm. good, but really I'm scheming or whatever she, whatever she would have been doing in terms of acting to the camera when the, the actual video camera was there. You don't have any of that. So you do have to bash your audience over the head to a degree when you don't have any of that nuance in there. You, ju- you simply have the same still picture again and again. The only, the only way you can convey the information is by using it timing it to coincide with those kind of significant points in the audio. It it had nothing to do with the fact that they did it over and over again. It was the instant they showed that. I think her face says everything you need to know. That is the, huh, I can get rich face. And (laughs) I think that's a beautifully, whoever took that telestap picked the exact right instant to get what that woman is going to do. That is the perfect picture. I got that face. I looked at it. I'm go. yep, she's betraying her. Maybe it's partially the timing. And then, of course, the second I, time I, they did I, it, I the third time, time they did it, the fourth time they did it, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But because <laughs> where, I'm, however, I'm not sure I got that sense. Perfect. I'm not sure I got that sense as strongly as you because what the script gives you is that someone is going to betray Barbara. And what that telesnap gives you is that there are two women who the camera, as it were, camera in inverted commas, has cut to at this point. And then it keeps mm. cutting back to the same telesnap and the same two women. And I was like, well, I'm pretty sure it's the one on the right. But oh yeah, I don't know <laughs> yeah. that because I don't know where these telesnaps have been taken from. It's not until later in the story where she creeps out of the room and you get to see a different telesnap that you realise, yes, it was the one on the right. I, I really did. I, I wrote in capital letters, that woman the first time they put that shot up i'm like ah yeah (laughs) burned in my head that's made could be the framing could be all sorts of things but it was just it was you know it could be just a picture showing the massive harem that he's got of you know three women i don't know what else there is about this telesnap i'm i'm glad to get a chance to see it i'm disappointed at 
how they've chosen to do it. I don't know. It doesn't, it really doesn't seem to me like this historical is that much more complicated than a space drama. The fact that they do have three clothes changes, notwithstanding, but I have, I have to say, cause I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of going back to three or four years ago when Charles Norton kind of picked out some of the episodes like Marco Polo, the Highlanders, and indeed this one as being unlikely to be animated because of the, the kind of costumes involved. And I, and I looked at it and I thought, well, you know, is this really that the way, the way it's kind of mounted, the way the production is mounted, it doesn't look to my non expert animators. eye as if it's that different from say the reign of terror, but I guess when you actually look at the cast list and the number of people that they would have to draw, rig, and animate. Literally, they do have a lot of people coming and going. It's a, it's a lot of people. And it goes back to that thing that you were saying about, you know, one episode, there's a, there's a load of characters, they all disappear, and then you get another load of characters in the next episode. And so all of those have to be created separately by the animators, and I can see why that makes this, you know, potentially... I don't know, twice as expensive as an episode that only has a, a few people in it. I do have to ask this question. I, I, and I'm, I'm willing to bet that there is like a, a dramatic story to be told that behind the scenes of intrigue and possibly illness and death or something. But at the end of episode three, yes, at the end of episode three, a bandit comes upon Ian. He's trying to steal some stuff and then Ian catches him spins him over, get him choked, and then an unseen assailant whacks him over the head from behind. And he says, thank you, my brother. And the episode, or that part of the episode ends. In the next episode, a completely different actor is got him pinned, and he refers obliquely to his off-screen brother, who we never see. <clears throat> Do you think there was supposed to be two actors here, and one of them got the the first guy got ill and couldn't come in the next week. And so they just had to go, uh, here, <laughs> do this, rewrite slightly and go. Because it, it's fairly odd that the way they did it. I, d- I know nothing about it. I, I don't know. But it did seem off, right? It, it seemed off yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. More of that. Well, the cast in one episode is not the same as the cast in the next episode. <laughs> But uh, well, uh, yeah, I mean that that is definitely the case, and it's true. It seems unnecessary, but from an animation point of view, if they had, unless unless the unless, the, unless David Whitaker had written it as a single character, which I guess is maybe what you're suggesting the original intent might have been, but he well, had to no, have had because... a second character to bash Ian. So right. if you'd have had the two brothers and both of them had appeared in you know end of episode three and through episode four. Still had given the animators two characters who they had to animate. So I was thinking that what they did was they didn't want to pay actor two to be in episode three for half a second. And then they were going to have the two brothers in episode two. And then the guy that we already saw on camera had to bow out for some reason. So they, I guess, maybe used the guy that was going to be his brother after all and just made him the only one, and he goes, oh, yeah, my brother's off stealing horses or something. Uh, <laughs> it's just, just just, odd. I, I, I perhaps should go look and see if there is any 
uh, tale of of that from the production side. But anyway, do you have anything else? I, I think we've. I do not. And I, there is no hint or announcement of any kind of any future Blu-ray box sets from the early years that have missing episodes. I, you know, I. I well, we know oh. we we know we're going to get them, but we don't know what order we're getting them in. So. It's hard to speculate I'm, when they're going to. It come. worries the heck out of me that they're going to go in and and put out one of the seasons where they've put together most of or all of the Troutons with animations, and they're going to release the box set without the animations, and they're going to make telesnap recreations. I can at this point, I can totally see them doing that. I go, oh no, no, I you got to buy those separately. Oh, uh, well, I, I hope not. But no, it would make sense for them to do it the way you envision it, and it, and therefore, I have this. But it would be completely inconsistent with everything they've done, where they they have essentially used all the available material relating to any particular season in the in the release of it. I mean, in some ways, I I I think the thing that they might struggle with is when they come to release some of those Troughton seasons, where we've had kind of three disc releases of certain serials mm-hmm. because we've got a color version we've got a black and white version and we've got the set of recons they'll do the recons they they won't be able to put they won't be able to put the all of that into a box that only has sort of seven or eight discs or whatever we've had in in the boxes so far so their choice will then be either make it into a much bigger more expensive set or say we'll only put the color animation in if that's what they see, it'll, the the it'll be the recons. It'll be the recons. It won't be the recons. <laughs> They'll throw in the, ep- it, the existing episodes and the the, the telesnap episodes because that is the what they've got. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think it will. I think. I think if anything, it's more likely they will try and include everything that's out there. So that would be the animated, color and black and white versions plus the recons. For the ones I hope that you're are missing. right, but I do think that it's hard to see how they can actually do that. So I think they they might end up having to say some of that bonus material on the animations isn't going to be included, and it would be the first time that they would have not included something that had been previously released when putting together one of these sets. But there's just been so much material. You know, the, these releases of the animations have been so complete, so comprehensive that it, it, it makes it difficult when you're when you're putting it together as part of a full season anthology. Yes, we'll see. We'll see. I think we've still got a few uh, not missing seasons from latter doctors uh, to still be done. So I, I suspect it'll be a while before we get to another Hartnell or Troughton box set. But I could be wrong. They might throw one Troughton out there just to see how it goes. All right. Well, uh, therefore, we don't know what would be next whenever we get around to talking about another Doctor Who episode, which was ultimately my point, is that, yeah, we might. You never can tell. Who knows? Well, I think the next (laughs) Doctor Who episode we'll be talking about is likely to be the 60th specials, um, because I don't think we're going to get a... Ed Troughton or Hartnell, another Hartnell set before November 2023. I think that's a fair, I think that's a fair bet. They would have announced by then, wouldn't they? 
Well, they haven't announced anything, right? There aren't any other box sets announced at this point. No, they used to. They used to announce the subsequent box set before the currently announced one got released. So it, it felt kind of almost the what, what's the Blu-ray release equivalent of chain smoking? It, it, it felt like whatever that would be. And it's, I think they have slowed down slightly. They were getting at least three of them out a year and it seems to be down to about two. But uh, I mustn't complain because I do think that the, you know, the, as I've said, these sets are incredibly comprehensive. They pull together all the materials from all previous VHS and DVD and in some case, you know, CD audio stuff, everything related to the season. It's an incredibly comprehensive set of stories and they look fantastic in all respects so it really is an amazing series Hmm. well simon thank you for joining me it's a pleasure as always listeners i hope you'll join us all again next time on fusion patrol you've been listening to fusion patrol thanks for listening if you've enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider supporting us at buymeacoffee.com slash fusionpatrol or patreon.com slash fusionpatrol. For our monthly Patreon subscribers, we're currently running a special series on Babylon 5. Come join the conversation in the comments section of this episode at fusionpatrol.com. You'll also find there over a decade of past episodes. You can find some of our other works at soundcloud.com slash fusionpatrol. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. Next time, Caravaggio is damaged and Percy replaces him with Kate, the crew's new holographic pal that's fun to play with, designed by Percy. What could possibly go wrong? Find out when we look at the Star Hunter Redux episode, Kate. Come join the conversation on Fusion Patrol.